You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. At this hour, board members of the Hawaii Tourism Authority are meeting. There's lots to talk about. The Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau is challenging HTA's recent decision to award a $34 million marketing and management contract to the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. The protest has stalled the council's time frame to begin work and triggered a three-month extension of HBCB's current contract to provide those services. The contract was to expire yesterday. And the governor on Monday announced he planned to veto a bill funding HDA's operations from the general fund and to instead use Federal American Recovery Plan Act funds. This morning, we connected with State Representative Richard Onishi, the House Tourism Chair, going into the 930 meeting to ask not just about the fix, but how did we get here? Things are pretty screwy right now (laughs) between the governor's veto and the challenges on the uh, award of the new contract. We've got to fix this, but, you know, how did we get to this place? Well, in regards to the HDA budget, the House and the Senate was not able to agree on the provisions for funding HDA. The position of the Senate was that they wanted to put in a number of caveats into where the money goes, buckets of money out of the $60 million, and also the staffing, specifications on the staffing. The House position has been and continues to be that we are not responsible for micromanaging HTA and have no intention in doing that to HTA or any other department or agency in regards to the entire operation. Now, we may address programs, but, you know, not specifically the entire department. So we couldn't come to an agreement. And HB 1147, because it dealt with the state's budget, we felt was the appropriate vehicle to make a budgetary adjustment to HB 1600. So... That's how the funding got placed in there, and it was general funded. So the budget basically deals with general funds. So, you know, the legislature felt it was an appropriate vehicle. Well, you know, the governor, uh, obviously, you know, running it by the lawyers, they have problems with the process and fear a legal challenge. Regardless of which direction you go, it has the same effect, right? It put the funding for HDA in jeopardy. So the question would have been if he had allowed HB 1147 to move forward with or without his signature, would there have been a challenge? You know, nobody knows. So, you know, now he has explicitly said that he's not going to fund HTA with general funds and he's unable to administratively fund them with general funds. So now he has to use ARPA funds. And, you know, um, I guess, uh, you know, the administration is lucky that there's ARPA funds available in order to do this. Right. And I'm sure someone's looked at the criteria and we're going to be good using those funds. Well, I mean, we view, we funded. Uh, HT with ARPA funds last year. So it shouldn't be a problem? It shouldn't be. We're not sure what's going on with this procurement process and the uh, the new contract uh, that is uh, pending. I mean, it was awarded to the Council for Native Advancement. 
in the most recent round. Previously, it was awarded to HVCB. What are your concerns at this point going forward? What's the, what's the right thing to do? Well, obviously, the right thing to do is to follow the procurement law and the process that's within the procurement law. So HBCB's protests of the award is within the process. And now the DBED procurement officer, who's Director McCartney, has to go through a process of determining uh, whether or not to go ahead with uh, the award to address the um the protests, or to look at the details of the award and make a determination that HTA go back and start again. So, you know, I, I believe in the procurement process. I believe that it is open and fair. And the point, I think, for me is, I guess, the problems that HTA has had in going through this process and coming up with something that or, or a recommendation that not being questioned. So this is the second time, you know, I mean, I, you know, would be very concerned that they would have to go through it a third time. Well, you want to do what's Pono and you want to make sure that we've got a team on board that can do what it's what it says it's going to do, you know, whether it's HVCB yes, exactly. or uh, the Council for Native advancement? Yes. I mean, you know, uh, the U.S. market is our largest market. It's the market that carried us through the pandemic. It is beginning to soften as international uh, destinations are opening up and, you know, the threat of COVID is lessening in some of these countries. So we're not going to be able to depend on the U.S. market continually carrying us without an appropriate marketing plan. So, you know, it is, this is a very, very, very important market for us in Hawaii. Well, the extension of the co- contract is a stopgap measure. Do you think that we should restart the RFP all over again to make That's it clean? That's not my call. It is up to the investigation done by the by uh, Director McCartney in, in terms of being the procurement officer or DBED, he makes that determination on whether or not to accept the protest and rebid, determine that the award, you know, uh, cancel the award and restart the process. I mean, it's all within his control at this point in terms of the process. And I believe that if HVCB is not in agreement with the decision that they can take it to arbitration for an arbitrator to decide. Well, you've been talking to some of the players involved in this, and are you satisfied that people were, were asked to be involved and that their their roles were pretty clear? Well, I have spoken to a, a few people in regards to some concerns that was brought to my attention. And I have concerns that there may have been some misunderstandings or some, I guess, unintended commitments made by the the people who made the proposal in regards to people's participation that may not be accurate. But, you know, I'm not part of the process. I don't know 
how important that issue was in terms of the scoring of the proposals, but it does merit investigation and consideration. Okay, but you don't think that's enough cause to throw out this and have to uh, rebid this thing again? Well, reset and you know, restart? I don't know, because I, I've been involved in, when I worked for Hawaii County, uh, I was involved in a number of computer system RFPs. And, you know, it is a very deliberate process that you have to go through to evaluate each of the proposals and score them. And the proposals are the most important thing and what they say and what they say they're going to do and who's going to do what. So it may or may not have had significant impact on the scores. I do not know. But, you know, it would concern me that this, you know, misinformation or whatever you would call it uh, may have occurred. As far as the procurement process, isn't there like a, a qualification requirement that, you know, before you submit a proposal that you have to have a list of your team and, you know, their credentials? Yes, you do. Well, it, it depends on the RFD and how it's written and what is going to be required to submit. Now, I have been involved at the county with proposals for RFPs for computer systems in which when our team evaluated the proposals, we rejected proposals because they were either incomplete or did not have the appropriate prerequisite requirements that was stated in the RFP. If you put out a request for qualifications and they fall short, you don't go to the next step. That's correct, but it's up to that procurement team, the evaluation team, to make that determination. And do you know what's been done in the past for these contracts? I mean, had they had to require a request for qualifications first? And was this changed recently? I don't know because I wasn't I don't think I was chair of tourism when HBCB got their original contract. Uh, I understand that as of tomorrow, Mike McCartney, as director of the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism, will have a seat at the board. Yes, correct. Can you explain that? So we passed the law this past session, a bill, and the governor signed it to allow for other people besides the director of DBED you know, to sit on various boards or commissions. And the legislature felt it was appropriate with HTA being administratively assigned to Mm -hmm. DBED that, you know, the DBED director should have a seat on the HTA board. Okay. And he sits there as long as he is holding that position. Yes, whoever whoever the director is. Right. We have had DBED during my tenure and my involvement with HTA as tourism chair, uh, DBED has had representation at the board meetings, but not as a voting member. Uh, anything else that you have concerns about on this agenda today? Yeah, I think that the board, coming out of this pandemic, I think that one of the key areas that we need to look at in terms of our visitor industry in Hawaii there's two things. One is the rebuilding of our international visitor travel and ensuring that we have the 
available resources to market to those international destinations or international markets. The other thing is I would like to see a greater involvement of the industry with HTA. In other words, the hoteliers, the tour companies, you know, maybe even the Retail Merchants Association, all of these people are part of our entire visitor industry, uh, Ohana. And I think there needs to be greater communication and synergy between HTA and the industry partners. So that's something that I'm going to be looking at moving forward. That was Big Island Representative and Labor and Tourism Chair Richard Onishi talking to us just before he went into a Hawaii Tourism Authority board meeting. Members were to vote on a plan to provide operational funds for the agency since the governor indicated he planned to veto a proposed funding bill due to legal concerns. And as we mentioned, uh, DBED Director Mike McCartney extended the HVCB contract, which was to expire yesterday for an additional three months. You're listening to The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, the spotlight is on one of nature's more remarkable adaptations, using sound to see. The ability is often described as the biological equivalent uh, to sonar or radar. It's something that bats and marine mammals have in common in uh, use for both navigation and locating prey. The animals send out high-frequency sounds, and when those sounds bounce back, they have a pretty good idea of where it is in relation to the environment. Dolphins squeeze air through their nasal passages beneath the blowhole. Whales send out a series of clicks to locate prey in deep water where visibility is limited. The sounds must be short and loud, loud enough to come back and short enough so they don't overlap uh, with the next signal. In marine mammals, it's described as an auditory imaging system using sounds to produce three-dimensional images of their surroundings. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we are looking for the name of this method of seeing in the dark. Call 808-941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neirit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeiritHawaii.com.
It's now time for our Daily Dose of Reality with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Political reporter Kevin Dayton joins us this morning to talk about the governor's race in the first forum between the leading candidates. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Kathy? Good. I'm good. And boy, was that a show yesterday. <laughs> that really was. You know, that was the first, as you mentioned, the first gubernatorial forum where the top three Democrats appeared together. And the tone of the discussion was striking because the candidates were so aggressive. You know, as you know, the sort of traditional style of campaigning in Hawaii tends toward softer disagreements and polite discussion in public forums, but this was not that. Yeah, um, I mean, this was an hour. Yeah, no, usually this was an hour-long discussion that featured some some pretty seriously harsh attacks, particularly on the issue of who got political donations from whom, and what that says about their uh, character and credibility. Yeah, and usually we don't see, you know, um, uh, the gloves uh, come out or go gloves off, right, until toward the very end as we get toward Election Day. But, boy, this is going to be a really interesting summer. I have to say, you know, I actually go back all the way to the days of Honolulu Mayor as, as do you, and uh, who was a pretty scrappy guy. And to my ear, this forum had sort of that rough-and-tumble feel to it that was more harsh even than the things that Fossey would say in this kind of setting. Um, that isn't bad, necessarily, but it was kind of surprising. And, and probably the toughest exchange came uh, when Kai Kaheli had an opportunity to ask Josh Green a question. And Kaheli sort of launched into a sort of monologue about a letter Green wrote to Governor Ige in December uh, after the Red Hill fuel leak contaminated the drinking water for thousands of, of um, white residents. Of course, everybody's familiar with that. Green um, apparently proposed uh, moving the fuel to facilities owned by Par Hawaii Refining, and Kaheli said senior executives at Par Hawaii had made thousands of dollars in campaign contributions to Green, and said Green's recommendation was strange because the state didn't know yet what the cause and scope of the fuel leak were you know, at the time that the letter was written. You know, the state later learned a lot more, they learned more than uh, 40 critical repairs need to be made before the fuel can be moved safely. And so basically, Kaheli accused Green of erratic decision-making and a rush to judgment that could have potentially made the, the benefited his campaign donor and also risk making the disaster worse. Yeah, but he also shot back. Uh, oh, he absolutely <laughs> did. Green replied that he was acting governor when the disaster hit and immediately visited the affected families and demanded that the military stop operations and begin to drain the tanks. And he, the way he put it was to come up with a solution immediately is leadership. Um, and then he turned the tables on Kaheli and said uh, um, other members, basically other members of the congressional delegation, essentially made the same recommendation later after they had learned more exactly what Green had proposed. Yeah, uh, and, and then Green also made, made the criticism of Kaheli, got into Kaheli's um, campaign contributions, uh, his, the donations that he had received. And said, basically, and this is a quote, your entire career has been built and predicated on taking money from special interests. You could tell that it, it got very hot very quickly, um, more, more so than campaigns normally do. Yeah, and then Vicky Cayetano, you know, was just able to sit there and kind of watch uh, the two guys go at each other um, and, and try and get some, make some points on, on her end. To some extent, although, yeah, uh, Vicky actually made the point that, you know, she, she also... Uh, to some degree, went after Josh Green and said that, you know, Green had even described himself as being difficult and suggested that he had made some of the uh, the, pand the public more confused during the pan that pandemic than need be. Um, and Green replied that he was very proud of his leadership during the pandemic and cited data showing that Hawaii had the lowest rate of COVID and infections and the lowest mortality rate. 
And he also cited the Safe Travels program as something his team built to revive the economy. So you kind of get the idea. It looked like Green was perceived to be the front runner, and the other two candidates were making an effort to sort of cut him down to size. And, you know, besides the pot shots, though, I mean, there were some policy differences. Definitely. You know, apart from the fireworks, um, one of the things that came out was Kaheli said that if he's elected, um, he will not build a replacement uh, for Aloha Stadium because instead he wants to build 10,000 new houses in the Hawaba area. And housing was a, was a very uh, prominent uh, theme during the, during the discussion. Green said that we have to take on Airbnbs, that illegal Airbnbs, vacation rentals, are taking inventory uh, out from our people. And he also said that Hawaii needs to impose a severe tax on houses that are not occupied, second homes. Um, and then Green also proposed a climate impact fee of something on the order of about $50 per person on tourists as the end of the state. And he says that'll raise about $500 million to $600 million per year. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And then uh, I know the question on uh, Mauna Kea. Yeah, that was interesting as well. Uh, you know, you had uh, Kai Kahale saying that he is not in support of the project as it stands today, as it's proposed today. Vicky Cayetano saying that she does support uh, TMT, the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea. And uh, Josh saying that if it's going to be built, it has to be done in a more sensitive way. And, and Kahale, of course, criticized that, saying, hey, you're not really answering the question. Yeah, well... We'll look forward to the next uh, the next round. <laughs> they promise to be interesting, don't yes. they? Yeah. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. We have been talking to political reporter Kevin Dayton for our reality check. Uh, you can uh, uh, read his stories on civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from ThinkTech Hawaii's webinar, Who's Running for Lieutenant Governor? Evaluating the Major Candidates, moderated by Attorney Louise Ng, 10 a.m. tomorrow. Open to the community, thinktechhawaii.com. It's easy to voice what our values are. We hold these truths to be self-evident. But living by them? That's another story. There are things that we know are wrong, and we say, well, that's for someone else to deal with. The contradictions of an American icon. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7, following Living on Earth. Hawaiian culture has many traditional art forms. You're probably familiar with hula, mele, and oli. One you may not have heard too much of is hula ki'i, or puppetry. Auli'i Mitchell is a Big Island native and the kumuhula of Halau o Kahivahiva. Uh, Mitchell says the ritual dance of carved images is a critically endangered Hawaiian practice, and he's working to preserve and revive the nearly lost tradition. The Conversations' Russell Subiano had the opportunity to sit down with Mitchell to talk about hula ki'i and its origins. Prior to learning about your exhibition, I did not know that there was such a thing as Hawaiian puppetry. Can you share what that is? Hawaiian puppetry is the dance of the sacred image or in today's terms, Hawaiian puppetry. Mm -hmm. It's one of the last genre of hula, which my research personally began over 30 years ago. And still today, not even many kumuhula have not even known that we had puppets. 
it goes way back. The first documented account of a performance of the Hulaki'i was in 1820 on the island of Kauai, where the great chief Kamuali'i and his wahine gave a performance of six puppets to Russian voyagers. And so my research began as a challenge from my kumu, my mother Harriet Aana Cash Mitchell. And the stories that were given to us of the ancient hula puppetry were from my auntie Kavina Pukui to my grandfather. He held on to those mele for many, many years until passed on to my mother. And then as a young kumu under her, she challenged me to find the true story. So my research really began in, in 1982. I had not heard of them either. I knew of puppetry in general. But that summer, we went to the Bishop Museum and we met our Auntie Pat, Patience Bacon. And she was the one who turned me on to the physical forms that exist in the Bishop Museum today. There are three puppets there from a man by the name of Pa'akaula, who was a employee on the Damien Estates in Wanalua Valley. He and Auntie Kavina Pukui were students of an old kumuhula known as Nahainaka. And it said it, it's, her origin was in the district of Waianae and then brought to Moanalua and then throughout the islands. There's one book written about it called The Hula Ki'i by Catherine Luomala. Mm -hmm. It covers all forms of the Hula Ki'i, an actual dance where the dancers become the image of the Hula wow. and they do dances as if they were images like you see on the Pohaku Ki'i or the petroglyphs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there is the, in the same folk art, there is the actual carved images of these puppets. So after the Bishop Museum, I got to see Pa'akaula's puppets. And there are obviously a family, a male, a female, and a nursling made of our native wood called Vili Vili, which is endangered today. So my first puppets after that summer with Auntie Pat and given that book, was the lead of my path for these past years. Mm -hmm. And I went to the Smithsonian National History Museum in Washington, DC, met Adrian Kepler there, and there were the six puppets that were given to Nathaniel B. Emerson, noted authority of Hula at that time. He was given these six puppets by Kamehameha III's brother, who was the Kumu Hula of that time until his death. Research finds that those six puppets were kept by Nathaniel B. Emerson. His last performance with them were in 1902 at the World Expo in New York. Then after that, he gifted them to the Smithsonian. It's those puppets is where I decided to start carving the key. So I didn't have native woods. I was in California at that time. So I used paper mache and avocado wood to make them look like those puppets. Mm -hmm. So I just got creative and then I used them to dance. I did not know how to carve at the time. So I relied on my, my Ike Papalua, my intuition mm -hmm. and my dreams, of course, to my ancestors to help me get these hands to be able to create something out of wood. Yeah. So that was 1995. And so that's where I would go into the teaching, trying to advocate to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. And just kept going, creating, preserving, perpetuating, disseminating where I could, because it's not a dance for everyone. And we don't have documented sources to tell us how it was done. So it became my family's tradition mm -hmm. in the likeness of those of old. There are 
two other traditions before mine, which is Etinona Beamer and the late Kumuhula John Keola Lake. I met them in the early 1990s as they were taking their hula ki'i hand puppets around to the different islands. When they came to Hawaii, Auntie Nona called my mama and said, hey, bring your boy over here, get the kind, get the, um, get the puppets. We like to see his, his puppets. Mm-hmm. And so here I brought the carved image into the world with them. And now this event that's going to be held here uh, at, um, on July 10th through the 30th of the month um, is called Hanauho Kahula Ki'i, the rebirth of Hawaiian puppetry in the 21st century. It's focused on all traditions yeah. of the hula ki'i and bringing it to awareness to the indigenous communities. I think when most people think about puppetry, they think about maybe hand puppets or marionette puppets. So when we talk about hula ki'i or we talk about Hawaiian puppetry, how does it actually work? How does it function? Is it like a marionette or is it used yeah. as an implement in dance? In, in the documented sources, they do call them marionettes, actually. The marionettes have strings, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Puppets is different. So I have created my own tradition in, in this hula with the key. It's done, of course, with the carved image, but we sit in the hula noho position. It's a sitting hula okay. where we bring the ki'i alive with chant, oli, mm-hmm. and then as they awaken, they are become the vehicles for the story to be told through. You know, I go back to the old system of things we lived under when we had many deities. We have our houses of knowledge from the heavens to Papahanaumoku to Mother Earth and how that itself is important because our images were just reminders of these deities. And when the missionaries came, the congregationals in the 1820s, they, of course, introduced a new belief system. Our temples were burned and taken down. Our idols were destroyed. Many of them ended up as savage curiosities in museums far away from here, as we know. And thus, where the hula ki'i has also ended up. So I believe through my re- research all these years that it was the intelligence of our loyal hula, our expert hula ancestors in the past that saved the image by doing the hula ki, by bringing it back and making it a tool to tell story through because it really graced the presence of our great chiefs first. This was their entertainment. This was a way for them to tell our myths and legends through, to speak in a language that they were familiar with, such as olelo kapeke peke or olelo huna, a shifty secret way of talking, full of metaphors, gibberish, that the ali'i were really, really keen at understanding and using. Then it went down to the lehu lehu, down to the multitude, to the other places in our Hawaiian society at that time. So I believe it was them who said, okay, we're going to bring it back. You took it away. We're going to bring it back. We're going to keep it alive. And that's how it existed and was brought back. So for me, the whole idea was let me bring it back to its origin in the Halal Hula, the Hula Academies, reintroduce it back from where it came from. And for me, over 30 years, I've been working with these puppets, which are inanimate objects, (laughs) 
which have no articulation that go like this. <laughs> so the dancer has to really move and make it come alive with their mana and transmitting that mana into it. So by doing this, bringing it back to its origin, I can rest assured that it will be loved and cared for and taken care of, at least in my traditional style, as close as I can to the old style through my research. Then now I can evolve Hawaiian puppetry to articulation, like you'll see at this exhibit, and then to the Lion King size. I want Hawaiian puppetry, which is already on the map, but I want to form relationships globally with other indigenous communities and peoples and their puppetry. Because as Catherine Luamala writes in her book, she went through all of the records of the ships that came over in the early, early years and nothing, no puppets were on those ships. So we truly believe, or I do, that it came out of Polynesian origin because you go back to Kaiki, to Tahiti, mm -hmm. they had them. You'd go to Aotearoa, New Zealand, they have them. Right. You go to Samoa, they have them. So I believe it's something out of our own origin, which, you know, storytelling is all we had. We're oral peoples. How do we entertain ourselves? That was Kumuhula Ali'i Mitchell talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about Hawaiian puppetry. Mitchell is curating a hula ki'i exhibition at the Downtown Art Center. Uh, it opens July 10th and runs through the 30th. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about a skill that whales and dolphins share with bats. It's a way of using sound to see, and it works just as well in deep water as it does in dark caves. The animal sends out brief, high-pitched sounds and is able to get a fix on its own location and the location of obstacles and prey when the sounds come back. Radar and sonar work on the same principle. Uh, whales, for example, go after prey in deep water by emitting a series of clicking sounds, making those sounds more rapidly as the prey gets closer. And dolphins produce sounds by squeezing air through their nasal passages beneath their blowhole and directing those sounds with their melon, the fat-filled area on their forehead. Uh, it's the echo that makes the difference, and that's the term we asked you to come up with, echolocation. And our winner today, Jenny from KL. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Jan Phillips, author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about healing from religious wounding. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
2019, Hawaii students have achieved something never done before. Their projects in Olelo, Hawaii are now featured without translation in the Smithsonian Museum's National History Day online showcase. The projects were part of the Hawaii History Day competition, which was held earlier this year. Topics include racism against Asians, the women's right to vote, and this high school senior group performance entitled Ke Kahua. You were hearing from Kailua High School seniors Kaipo Akioka, Pahonu Coleman, and Kilinahe Naluai, sharing that which expresses their love for the Hawaiian language, Ke Kahua. Nine projects in total are part of the display. To learn more about how these students accomplish this achievement, the conversations Lillian Song caught up with Aiko Yamashiro of the Hawaii Council for the Humanities, which runs Hawaii History Day. This was a wonderful moment to help to support larger language revitalization happening in our home. We have been running this program locally for 35 years, and not until 2019 did we really, as a nonprofit, change what we were doing, really transform what we were doing to create a space for Hawaiian language Olava Hawaii students to participate without needing to translate their projects into English. We started with that with one amazing school, one fearless teacher and her students, and that school was Kaumekikael Public Charter School in Keokaha. They really helped us change everything. We got some volunteer judges who kind of helped come in at the last minute to take care of these kids and look at their projects. They were creating documentaries and display boards and essays and websites, performances, all in Hawaiian language on all kinds of topics. And I want to thank DJ Mermaid, Paige Okamura, now with HPR. She was one of our first volunteer Olelo Hawaii judges when we started this off in 2019. Hawaiian language has been a topic over and over again in our projects. We've also had projects in the past that were bilingual, that were in Hawaiian and in English. But to take a stand here and to talk with our judges who are Hawaiian language teachers and researchers too, they really carry with them the sense of responsibility to give back and to help create more spaces, more opportunities for people to be able to learn and speak. So I think DJ Mermaid is, is a wonderful example of that. She's creating this space on the radio with HBR, and, and she really believes that we want to support the actual language revitalization happening. As a program, we have some power to create a space to send this message to kids that if you're doing something in Hawaiian, we celebrate it, we support it, and it's not something that's holding you back. You don't have to translate into English in order to participate, right? Let's, we can, at this point in language revitalization, there are so many folks who can speak. It's in all of these areas of our world, and we can create this space that's really important. When you do research in Hawaiian language, all of this richness 
opens up. For example, you have access to Hawaiian language resources, newspapers from the 1890s or the early 1900s. You have access to interviews and recordings in Hawaiian. And so you're hearing all of these voices and perspectives about historical moments that you do not have access to in the English language. And that's so exciting to be bringing these voices to light and back to the community when we know that as a community there have been real intentional efforts to stop the Hawaiian language, to make it disappear. And so now instead it's this activity from our community of bringing this richness back and seeing all of the wisdom and treasure that comes with it. To not have to translate it or to hear it in somebody else's translation, that first-person experience, that perspective, either in the article or in the interviews, how are these kids able to access this treasure trove of Hawaiian resource? We have so much gratitude to teachers. All of these kumu we have with us today, who are themselves standing on the backs of their kumu, right? We have all of the support for young people to enter these archives that do exist or to talk to elders in this particular way. Another organization that helped us early on is Nahava'i'i Niloa, which is an organization of Native Hawaiian librarians whose focus is to be able to help create Hawaiian language research materials, help to provide access points for the community to see, wow, here's all of these wonderful voices and wonderful stories that teach us so much about who we were and where we want to go. And another group that we worked with is Awaiolu, and they're another publishing research organization that continue to put out really wonderful educational materials, putting together games and other really fun ways to get people involved and to access these kinds of opportunities. And Kamehameha Publishing is another wonderful supporter of our program. They're constantly putting out educational resources for all kinds of learning levels. So it's just this really rich world. I feel so lucky to be living in this moment when there are all of these things being created, all of these folks of all ages who are coming through this revitalization. You mentioned that the group, Nahava'i Imiloa, the librarians, there were radio recordings, some historical recordings. Fill me in on that. It was Larry Kimura was one of the first DJs. He started a radio show to interview actual not speakers who learned Hawaiian in a classroom, but native speakers, Manaleo. They would call into the radio and they would talk about all kinds of things. It started airing in 1972 on KCCN. And it was called Kaleo Hawaii, and we went all the way to 1988. Again, Larry Kimura, who is a famous teacher at UH Hilo, now with the Hawaiian Language Program. But this is such a beautiful archive because you're listening to all these elders talk about things that are not in the textbooks at all, and they're making jokes, and they're talking about music, they're talking about daily life, they're talking about what it felt like to um, not be able to speak Hawaiian in school, to be punished. All of these really, really important stories. So there's 10 years of recordings of these interviews, and you can check some of them out archived online. This is just one example of the kinds of real precious, you know, the voice of a person. You can't replicate that. This really, really precious trove. And my little experience with it is that I took Hawaiian language classes at UH Manoa, and they give us, as an assignment, they listen to some of these recordings 
Oh, it's so fun. It's such a challenge because, again, the textbook is giving you kind of, oh, do this sentence, um, do this sentence. It's kind of, it's totally different than listening to a native speaker just go, <laughs> no holds barred, <laughs> breaking the rules, you know, introducing all of these metaphors and ways of speaking. It really helps you to learn this is a living language um, with so much complexity to it. It is very much so in just like how you use it, how much you use it too, right? I mean, even with just say, you'll have different dialects coming through. So with Hawaiian, when you're listening to that, that radio show, you never knew who would be calling in and what sort of maybe dialect of Hawaiian you'd get. Can I say that? Yes, I, um, I, I'm not an expert, but right to, again, there's a difference between this kind of textbook grammatically correct language, which is it's still important to have that resource, but uh, any living language, there's, there's so much variation. There's so many things going on with individuals, with regions, like you're saying, in communities and how they speak. When a language encounters new things, right, what new words are created or um, new slang or new ways of saying things. Language is, it's a worldview. It's a whole way of thinking and interacting with the world and talking about the world and interacting with each other. Well, there's so much richness there. This showcase really is the first of its kind in the U.S. Yes. National History Day is a really big national program, actually worldwide program. According to National History Day, they half a million students across the world use their curriculum. And every year they have a big competition in Washington, D.C., where all of these kids come together, including kids from Hawaii. But this year, 2022, is the first time that they've created a special showcase for Indigenous language students to showcase their historical research and presentation in their native language. And we're so proud of this achievement for our students. We're proud that the national organization wants to support this kind of language revitalization work. And we are talking with them about how this is just the first step. Really, these Hawaiian language students are creating space for other native language students to come in and be a part of being recognized. We're helping make bringing back these languages that are really important for our world. And there is a beauty to just listening to language uninterrupted, untranslated. For myself, my ancestors are Japanese and they're Okinawan and they're Chamorro. Those Okinawan languages are also endangered. It's another indigenous language that's endangered. Chamorro language also, as the older generations are leaving, there are less and less speakers. And so when I hear, when I hear a native language, especially a young person. Kids are so powerful in that way. A lot of the immersion schools and experience that families are having is the immersion started for younger kids first, right? So it's kind of like the kids were leading. There are these like bright, shining pua in the word in Hawaiian for flowers, also for child pua, like this cherished, beautiful thing. So I see them as these like really beautiful flowers, right? They're leading us. Mm. Um, they're helping us get to this place. And that's, it's powerful. It inspired me to, to feel like I can be a part of this too. I can reconnect to languages that are a part of who I am. I have this entryway or invitation into, you know, as somebody who grew up in Hawaii and this is my home and I love it. I want to take care of it. I know Hawaiian language is really key to that. And I feel excited about trying to learn more in this life that I have. And so 
there's a lot of pain in this kind of history, thinking about what we've lost. But then there's so much hope and inspiration and energy. And I really hope that a language showcase like this can help to inspire other people to to be a part of this movement, to feel how good it is to reconnect to languages that are very important to who we are. That was Hawaii Council for the Humanities Executive Director, Aiko Yamashiro, talking with the Conversations Lillian Song. The students uh, in language, there is life collection, will be featured on the Smithsonian Museum's website through July. We'll have links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Today is the last day we're taking nominations for HPR's Community Advisory Board. We're looking for volunteers from across our islands to help shape the future of HPR from the lens of their unique communities. Neighbor Island Voices are especially welcome to apply. Apply today at hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for us for right now, but tomorrow we have invited Honolulu Police Chief Joe Logan to spend the hour with us. Now's your chance to talk to him directly. It's a call-in show. Share your ideas on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, and you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.